Welcome everyone to It's a Rap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features extraordinary people who do special things to enrich our lives and people who have overcome major challenges and adversities in their lives to come out on top. Our guest today is Justin Bryan. He is a mental health advocate, an inspirational speaker, and a life coach. For about half of his life, he has been riddled with an endless cycle of addiction stemming from his mental health. With many dark nights, self-doubt, and questioning if he was going to make it, he almost gave in. However, with sheer determination, discipline, and finding his why, he has been able to push through the darkness and into the light. Justin has earned his associate and professional life coaching certificate, as well as a public speaking certificate. Justin travels to schools, businesses, sports teams to talk about workplace wellness, mental health, and addiction. His goal is to bring awareness to the reality of the spiral mental health can have on individuals, as well as teaching people when to recognize it and talk about it. Through sharing his story, he teaches healthy coping mechanisms. Justin has been sober for two years now. Justin wants people to know they are not alone and it's okay to be not okay, but it is not okay to stay there. Welcome, Justin, to the show. I'm really happy to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me, Ronald. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, listen, can you tell us about your, your, your early years uh, growing up in Western Canada? Uh, you know what? I had a, you know, I had a decent upbringing, um, but, you know, now that I look back on it and from what I know now, uh, you know, it stems like a lot of my mental health stemmed from, you know, not having a lot of self-worth, you know, self-confidence, self-esteem. You know, I was always comparing myself to other people. I never wanted to be me. I always wanted to be someone else. Um, right. I still, I had friends in high school, you know, people liked me. I was athletic and, but you know, for some reason, I just I didn't want to be me, and I always tried to be the funny guy to get people to like me because I was, you know, I was very insecure as a kid. And so, but I can see that now, which you know, going through my childhood and adolescent years and stuff like that, I never would have put it all together that it has anything to do with my mental health. Right. But now that I know more about it, I can kind of associate, you know, some reasons why I kind of acted the way I did, and you know, I've learned along the way. Yeah. Can you uh, just talk a little bit about your, your high school years? How was that? Well, you know what? They weren't bad. I was, <laughs> I was picked on a little bit. Uh, my, I had a nickname. My nickname was actually Gay. Um, <laughs> but I was very, you know, outgoing. Um, I tried to dress nice. You know, I tried to, you know, I tried to goof around a lot. Um, but one thing was I was a little bit behind all my friends in sports, so like it was very hard for me, like always watching my friends make the rep teams and stuff like that. And yeah, you know, that was one of the, I didn't really realize how much uh, of a toll that actually took on me, but you know, high school, it wasn't too bad. I, I got decent, I got decent grades, good grades actually. Um, for when I went to school, but <laughs> uh, you know, I was, I was kind of lazy in high school. Like I, I was one of those kids that I, I skipped 36 English 12 classes. I was failing, but then I wrote the exam and I passed. Awesome. So, you know, I definitely had the abilities to do a lot better. Like I was on the honor roll before and, but I was just, you know what? I was lazy. I didn't want anything. And I realized I, I slept a lot and it could have been because I don't know. Well, maybe if one, I'm a teenager, I'm pretty lazy, but I knew teenagers that weren't, but yeah. also you know, maybe it was because I was sad maybe because I was battling internally. Yeah. But when I got out of high school, you know, I didn't really drink in high school. Um, but when I got out of high school, I turned into an alcoholic really quick. You know, That's what I was going to, yeah, leads into my next question. At what age did you start drinking and what do you think was the motivation to do it? Well, I started drinking, I think my first drink was a New Year's. I was 16 years old and, you know, but I mean, I, I just drank that, that night. Um, yeah. And then I drank a handful of times throughout high school. I, I didn't drink much. But when I got out of high school, I moved away for hockey. And, and then I started to drink even more and more. I, my billet house was just an apartment building. Me and another guy and the parents would come in and out. And, you know, what? From, from the very start of me drinking more and more, I, I quickly turned into an alcoholic because I loved who it made me. I loved the confidence it gave me. 
I thought it made me funny. I thought I was turning into somebody that people would like, you know, and eventually it ended up people didn't want to be around me if Justin was drinking. Yeah. Um, but I turned, I quickly became an alcoholic. And then at 24 years old, I, you know, I'm bartending downtown Vancouver and I'm, I'm drinking every single night, going out to the bars, you know, I refuse to believe in all, I'm an alcoholic because I'm 24 years old. I'm having fun, but I did cocaine for the first time. And, and that was at 24. Yeah. At 24 years old. So this is 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was always against drugs. You know, I wasn't against people that did them, but I'm like, um, drugs aren't for me. Right. I'm what, stay away. what do you think Justin prompted you to do to start the drug thing? You know, it, it was just there. It was available. So I tried it and then my buddy said the worst thing he could have said to me, which, you know what, people wouldn't think is a bad thing, but he said, man, you were funny. But to a guy like me who's struggling, yeah. if you tell me I'm funny, that clicked. So all of a sudden I was like, hey, I have alcohol to help my confidence. Right. I have drugs to make me funny. I'm going to put them together. So then I started mixing. Sure. I, so, so, you, he, he th so you thought it was like an aid. To you. Yeah, so yeah. it was it was definitely a coping mechanism for a booster, me. Booster, whatever. Yeah, because you know I, I ended up getting um an algorithm to drink. So I would have this many drinks before I leave my house, this many drinks to talk to this person, this many drinks to talk to this dance or to dance on the dance floor. And like everybody always like, Oh, you're so confident. And oh, boy, was that a lie. I was using these drugs where yeah. I, We'd be doing them by myself or even to go to a friend's house. I would have a hat or one of those mini Mickey's. Yeah. Calm my nerves down. And then when I'm sitting around a group of my peers, they're all laughing, having fun. And I'm like, okay, I'm not funny enough. And then I'd have some more and have another shot. And, you know, and then eventually I'd end up blacking out and or I'd do more drugs and be up for three days and, or I'd black out and come, come to three days later. Like I, I was coherent, but I couldn't remember it. And all that, you know, I had concussions as a kid too, or not even as as late as 28 years old, I was sucker punched. And I mean, that doesn't help. No. You mix the concussions with mental health, with alcohol and drugs. The recipe for <laughs> it's, a, it's, it, it's a bad, bad mix for sure. Now, did you believe you were an alcohol, an addict or an alcoholic at any time when you were using these substances? I mean, did you say, hey, I'm an alcoholic or, or, or you know, you hear about a lot of people who are doing it. And they, and they just deny it. So it's... Yeah. So at 24 years old, when I was bartending in Vancouver. Uh, one of the bartenders actually approached me and he asked me, he's like, Hey, can I ask you something? And I'm like, yeah, what's up? He's like, do you think you drink too much? Now he was an ex alcoholic. He, I knew his story. I knew why he drank. I knew why he doesn't drink anymore. And I just looked at him like, no, there's no way because, but they noticed things that I was out every night, but I could have that bar shut down within 15 to 20 minutes and be out like fully stocked, wiped down, uh, cash out, gone for power hour, power half hour, whatever I could get it out for and drink as much as I can. And then I'd go home and order a bottle or something. So these guys knew it because the managers would come be like, why, why can't you guys close the bar this quick? I mean, Justin can, so why can't you? And they're like, and they're just like, well, cause he's an alcoholic. <laughs> so he asked me that that night yeah. and, on my way home, so what I did, what I was to do, close the bar, go to the, close the bar, go to the bar. Yeah. But on my way home that night, I started asking myself, Justin, do you think you drink too much? I'm like, there's no way I drink too much. I'm 24 years old. I live downtown in the big city. I'm a bartender. I like to have fun. And I said, Hey, Justin, do you think you're an alcoholic? And then I was like, No, I'm too smart. I said these words. I'm too smart. Right. To be yeah. alcoholism is for low lives and people that are not normal which i knew i knew deep down i was an alcoholic so because you were you, yeah you were you, but you were a functioning alcoholic yeah that I mean, point you I could was. pull them pull you know close the bar down like that yeah. you know you you were functioning mm -hmm. you know which a lot of people are functioning alcoholics justin what toll did the drugs and the alcohol uh, take on your family life, your jobs, your friends, and all that. Yeah. Oh. So I would move around from job to job. Um, I would like to pause a moment to tell you that I just finished reading one of our past guests' book, Soaring into Greatness, A Blind Woman's Vision to Live Her Dreams and Fly, 
by Gail Hamilton. Gail's first six weeks of life began within an incubator. Six months later, doctors discovered RLF, an eye condition caused by the infusion of 100% pure oxygen. By age 11, she was completely blind. Soaring into greatness follows Gail's story as her outer visual world merged with her inner vision, forcing her to listen with her inner voice, to follow her heart and tune into her intuition. Subjected to physical and emotional abuse, ostracized, and oftentimes feeling alone, Gail's journey is one of the courage and perseverance it takes to find one's way through the darkness and soar. The editorial reviews are stellar. President Jimmy Carter commented, a beautiful story of someone who has overcome a physical handicap and changed it into a force that is an inspiration. Marilyn Van Derber, Miss America, 1958, said, a compelling and powerful story. Robert Dean Smith of the Metropolitan Opera wrote a gleaming example of one of the greatest and most profound desires of the human race, that of the search for truth. You will not be disappointed reading Gail's story. Available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, in paperback or e-version. I was getting fired. I went from city to city. I, I lived in 27 different places in my child, like from my childhood and back. And some places were more than once, but like I moved 27 different times. Wow. But I was chasing, I would mess up somewhere. And I'm like, okay, I'm going somewhere else. And then I'm going somewhere else. Then I'm going to go somewhere else. But then I started to lose job. And it started to catch up to me. And I moved home at 28. And I, I tried to seek help because then I finally, I, I knew, I'm like, okay, well, something's wrong. Like there's, why do I drink? Right. And so I started seeking help and then I got diagnosed with clinical depression, general social anxiety, ADHD. And it was hard for me to accept. I mean, it was, it was good to hear it. But it was hard for me to accept it. Right. Because nobody, I don't know many people that want to say, okay, I don't have it all together. I need help. But that's what people really need to get more comfortable in doing. Right. Life alone. But 28, I'm at home. You know, I, I get a job at a mill, but I'm just a mess. I'm missing time at work because I'm drinking too much, you know. So I took a leave of absence. Then me and my girlfriend broke up. However, on my birthday, we ended up hooking up. Three months later, she told me, hey, Justin, listen, I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm like, okay. All right but the drinking didn't stop. I was still on a lead from work and then I ended up crashing a car. I'm like, okay, you know what? I got to, I got to get out of here. I got to go to rehab. So I went to rehab. However, I went with the wrong mindset. I went with the mindset. I know I'm going to work out two twice, twice a day. I'm going to eat six times a day. I went up to 245 pounds. So I, you know, I go into classes, but I wasn't, I wasn't there. Right. Yeah. You you, You weren't really into it. No. Yeah. Yeah. I was there with 60 other dudes. If you take away their coping mechanisms, there some of them are in jail, some of them have been abused. Like there's a lot of testosterone. However, you know what? One thing about rehab is that I felt more normal there than I do around my friends. Because I'm the black sheep. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and you fit in the other place. Together. Yeah. Well, they might not have it all together, but <laughs> they could sure make it look like it. <laughs> yeah. But they're still functioning, right? So yeah. Uh when I got out of rehab my uncle picked me up and I said, uh, the first thing I said, I'm like, Oh, I'm not done drinking forever. Well, why do you go to rehab then? Like three months later, my son's born. No, a month later. So yeah. One month later after I get out of rehab, my son was born. Right. I never wanted him. Not because I didn't want a kid because I was, I was scared that he was going to turn out like me. I was yeah, very understandable. Yeah. I just, you know, I, I just didn't want to be like me. And that's a bad, that's a brutal feeling. It's like, you, Oh yeah. You feel so low about yourself that you don't want your son because he might turn out like you. But then, you know, I, you think I'd get better for him. But three months later, I'm hitting the bottle again. And six months after that, at his, he's six months old. My girlfriend had to make the decision to pack up and leave. Like she, and it's, I don't blame her at all. Like it, yeah. I'm not a good environment to be around as an alcoholic. You know, I wasn't drinking every day at that point. Like I was in Vancouver and I really, I wasn't touching that much drugs then. Like very, very little. Like I, I was doing okay. It's just, it, 
when I drank, I didn't know how to shut it off. Like I didn't have to drink every day, but I couldn't shut it off. It was so weird. It was literally beyond my control. Kind of like a binge. Yeah. No, I was, I was a binge drinker. Yeah. I went from an everyday alcoholic. Yeah. Just slowing down. Right. Because I would black out. And then I, I would keep drinking or I'd get up and I'd start drinking. Right. So she leaves and I, I end up going downhill. Like I, I'm in my darkest time ever. So I become, start to become suicidal. And for six straight years, I, every single day, I would think, how am I going to end this? How, yeah. What am I going to write? How am I going to do it to where I became a organ donor? Um, got milk thistle from my liver and kidney flush because I was preparing my body to die. And once I died, I wanted to give it away to somebody. So I was trying to get it healthy. But how can you get it healthy when you're drinking? <laughs> yeah. So I was trying to stay sober as much as I could to get my body healthy so I could donate it. You know, well, we're what? gonna we're gonna get into that uh, in in a, in a few minutes, but I did want to ask you. Uh, you you have stated that the hardest part of addiction is not quitting, but living in sobriety. So mm-hmm. could you elaborate for us on that? Well, I feel personally that you know you don't choose addiction, you don't choose to be an addict. However, you choose to stay in addiction. The hardest part of addiction isn't quitting, but living in sobriety. So that being said, every time I went one month, two months or three months sober, it was very hard to see other people doing it. And I couldn't thinking I'm not normal because I don't, I can't drink. So I'm putting alcohol on a pedestal, but it was learning how to have conversations, learning how to leave my house, learning how to have confidence in a sober without using it was without using a substance. That's been the hardest part of it all. Like I'm about 28 months sober, something like that. And it's still a little bit hard, you know, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, I'm a coach now. One of the hardest That's things. Awesome. That's awesome. You're doing great. Thanks. Uh, one of the hardest things for me to do is have conversations and I'm a coach, <laughs> but yeah. you, know, you go out of your comfort zone and I know I can help people. Um, so that was the hardest part. It was learning how to, you know, cause I used it to leave my house. I used it to dance. I used it to talk. I used it to go play hockey or to go play baseball. It's everywhere. But it was, it was a, it was a huge crutch. Is what it yeah. Was. Oh yeah. Well, and people don't realize it's alcohols on TV. It's at restaurants. It's in yeah. bars. It's in sports. It's in yeah. movies. You know, it's everyone's like, Oh, do you want to go for a drink? Do you want to go for a drink? Yeah. But now, you know, I, I, I say, yeah, I don't drink anymore, but a lot less. <laughs> <laughs> What are some of the biggest myths out there about drug and alcohol use? Uh, oh, geez. Um, that there's so much help out there. Everyone thinks that there's so much help out there. Uh, there is kind of. If you want to go to a private rehab center, you got to have 10 to 25 grand. I went to rehab. I was lucky that I got it through my counseling, but my parents yeah. couldn't pay for it. My yeah. family couldn't pay for it. So I had to pay for half of mine and you know what? There's waiting lists. So I couldn't get it. I had a union job. They wouldn't help me. Um, my parents couldn't help me. I has had to pay half of it myself. I had to go on a waiting list um, even to get counseling. There was a counselor that didn't, the counseling didn't want to see me because I also had an addiction of counselor, but then you got to do an intake, right? And then, you know, you got to have a phone. So what some of these POMS people, they don't have phones, but then you got to make it to that appointment. Um, but the counselor the I wanted to see an actual counselor, counselor, not yeah. the addiction part. And they wouldn't see me because they said, oh, it's, it's just alcohol. Well, it wasn't. So why am I drinking? Well, there's a reason why I drink. Sure. Um, everybody drinks there's like some people just you know they like to drink but they can turn it off right yeah they like to have fun but they turn it off me i drank to change my mindset and well, I they, do- they needed to find the root causes is what they needed yeah to so when people it really pissed me off the other day <laughs> sorry for saying this but uh not very many people know this story i think like two or three people but i'm at the gym the other day and i see on a, a facebook thread pops up in my hometown and it's people talking about an addict sleeping in the park. It's a kid's park. And they're like, get that addict junkie out of here. The low lifes. There's, they're going to be leaving needles around. And, you know, they, uh, 
yeah, they're just problem. They got to get out of here. They can't be sleeping there. You know, they just started lighting this person up, right? Yeah. And the person's up there. They're, oh, it's a choice. I'm like, okay, yeah, it is a choice. It is. Yeah, I believe you. But maybe there's not help. There's help everywhere. And there's not, though. I mean, there is, but there's not. Like, you got to be able to get help for being sober, staying sober, eating sober, sleeping somewhere sober. Some of these people don't have anybody. Some people, they've given up on themselves so much that their family gave up on them. Now yeah. I saw this and I'm like, man, I was there. I was almost, I wasn't homeless. I was very lucky that my mom let me stay in her basement. Very lucky. But there was times where I, I wanted, I was this far away from moving to Vancouver, living on the streets because I couldn't stand looking at myself because I knew every time I picked up that drug or alcohol that, you know, I'm hurting myself, my son, you know, my job, my family. Yeah. So I decided, I'm like, this, I'm like, I was getting, and I was going to, you know, respond on the Facebook thread. I'm like, these guys aren't even worth it. So I'm like, you know what? I got, I finished my workout, went home, went downtown or went to where that person was um, sleeping at the park. And yeah. I just sat beside him and I said, what's going on? Because I knew that person just needs someone to talk to them. That person is still a person. Sure. Imagine having to drink or do an alcohol or to drink alcohol or do a drug to feel good about yourself. Now I'm not making excuses for anybody. Like I, you know what I chose to do it and I know I shouldn't have, and I messed up a lot of things, but could you imagine feeling that this is what you have to do to feel good about yourself? And then all of a sudden you're in a park on the ground. Yeah. It's, it's so easy for people to, you know, to criticize and be judgmental, but and we're not judgmental on this program at all because uh, we realize there's there's reasons for everything. Yeah, you know? and, and I learned that in coaching. All behavior makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, that person even said that someone came by there, and it was a girl, said, hey, junkie, get the out or something. Right. Like you, they said something along those lines. So I yeah. sat there, and the, that same person came by. She's like, hey, do you need help? I'm like, no, I'm just here to talk to them so you can get your thread down. And so the person took the post off, right? Yeah. And no, I said, they don't need someone to push them out. They just need somebody to talk to and not complain about. So the person actually took the post down. That was pretty cool. <laughs> um, so I sat there and I talked to him for about an hour. I went and grabbed some food from the store, brought it back to him. And they told me their story. Like they moved out of a town because it was very hard to quit there because yeah. you get anywhere. So they came to this one. I mean, she's still using, she had it, right? But you know, she tried, she was trying and she, so I, I, I knew, I started to meet a lot of people along my way, like Canadian mental health and counseling from being in it and going and speaking. So I called a couple of my contacts and I said, Hey, this is this. So we got our place to stay, got her some food, got her a doctor, got her like methadone re-upped so she can go wow. off it slowly. But it's, you know, it's, everyone looks at a junkie as like a, you know, like, like I did. Yeah, disposable. disposable. Yeah, yeah. And I was that person that's like, oh, they're. But you know what? I never thought they were disposable because I always, I had the one guy in Vancouver. I always donated him money. Always when I got off my bar shift, always gave him my change. And then one day I didn't see him for a couple weeks. Or one time I didn't see him for a couple weeks. I kept my change. I had like two hundred bucks. I was like, (laughs) this guy's going and having a good time. But you know what? People look at him and like they look at you different. And I, I just by that post is. People think, yeah, like you said, disposable. And the myth is, you know, they're just people. Right. They're lost. They could be hurt, you know. They're, they're trying true. to fill a void. Now, Justin, you, you wrote that uh, you were suicidal for six years mm-hmm. and you plan to carry it out in January of 2019. When you had those thoughts, did you confide in anybody about it? No. I didn't want to lose my son. Okay. I didn't want to end up in the psych ward. Yeah. And I didn't want to lose my kid. So it was the, uh, the stigma and, and also the fear of somebody could call the, the authorities yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, that's a, and, that's uh, a big problem with, with the whole thing with the suicide thing. Now, how did you overcome the idea of suicide? I hospitalized myself on January 4th, 2019 and finally admitted out loud in front of my, both my parents and counselor that I had a plan. That plan was to end it. 
And ever since then, you know, I was lucky. I, I got to go home because I lived with my mom. Uh, it just, it felt good to say it out loud. Like I didn't have to run from it anymore. I didn't have to hide from it because there'd be so yeah. many times where I'd be at work looking at someone thinking, I want to die. I want to die. I'd be having a conversation with my mom. How am I going to do this without her knowing? Where am I going to, where am I going to leave my body? Like, what am I going to do? How, like, how am I going to make it so it's, it's not at the house. So she doesn't have to clean up. And like, you go into all these details of how, oh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine, be, you know, less impactful on somebody finding you. Yeah. Now, Justin, what advice can you give our audience of what and what not to say to someone they know uh, that confides their suicide thoughts to them and the meaning of the things that they tell them? Well, if someone don't just say you'll be fine right. or don't just say, oh, be positive. Don't try to fix them. The best thing you can do is tell me more. How can I help you? Can I do anything else? Have you, can I help you get help? Stuff like that. So you want to learn with the intent to listen, not to fix. Because for one, you're not a counselor. Don't get mad. And you know what? Don't get mad at them. That would be like the worst thing you could do. They're already giving up on themselves. They also, they already don't understand. Like for yeah. me, like I didn't, didn't understand. I'm like, why am I going through this? Like, why do I feel like this? I felt guilty. I felt guilty for feeling guilty. <laughs> I felt guilty for feeling bad, feeling bad. Like, you know, it's, I knew what my capabilities were, but I couldn't get my life together. I couldn't put the bottle down, you know, it's, you know, you're making the wrong decision. So you just start to feel bad and then you, your internal dialogue switches and you just, you just start to tear yourself up. And once you're tearing yourself up, you start to project your thoughts onto other people. So I'm projecting my thoughts into my other friend's head thinking, okay, he thinks I'm a loser. He thinks I'm a failure. When really it's just me thinking that, but I'm beating myself up because I feel bad for feeling bad. Yeah. What are some of the biggest mistakes uh, people with mental health issues make? Not asking for help. Asking for help. Trying to do it alone. So good example is, Every time I felt better, I would stop taking my medication. Every time I felt better, I stopped going to my counseling appointments. Now, I made the mistake of also thinking, oh, that's just the counselor. She's paid to be here. She doesn't want to be here. But you know what I had to think of? Because like, I was in such a negative mindset. I was like, I have these things called the three A's. Admit the problem, accept it internally, and then ask for help. So I had to admit the problem, whatever it was, that is real for me, that I had to accept it. And acceptance was the hugest part for me because I thought I accepted it and then I asked for help. But accepting that, Justin, you shouldn't drink. Justin, you, sh- you can't do, you, you know, yeah, you need help. You shouldn't, you can't yeah. do this, right? And that, the acceptance part was big. And like I said before, I would go off my medication. I would go off, stop seeing my counselor because I thought she was just there to get paid. But really, she chose that profession. She chose to go to school. Sure. For how long. Like, yeah, do they get paid? Well, for sure. You know, but still, you know, they, they're there for a reason. And you do not have to do this thing called life alone. Uh, could you please tell people out there who may be in a similar place or know someone in a similar place uh, about your philosophy to deal with mental health issues such as addiction, depression, and how you found these coping me- mechanisms such as finding your why. Well, you know what? I actually started, list- luckily, I started listening to motivational speaking on YouTube when I was working out. And, you know, I was listening to guys like Trent Shelton, Inky Johnson, Eric Thomas, and uh, Les Brown. Now, I had no idea who those guys were. I sure do now. <laughs> like those guys are like my idols, but they started talking about finding your why. So I had to ask myself, what is my why? And you know, my why was, it was going to be, you know, I wanted to leave the world so I could, my son could grow. He was three years old. He'd grow up with a healthy father. He wouldn't remember me. But then I was like, what if I got better for him? Well, if I get better for him, I get better for me. If I get better for me, I can help other people. Now, you're going to have a lot of people say, do it for yourself. And I totally agree. Do it for yourself if you can. If you can't, find your why to do it. Find the why that's going to help motivate you, help inspire you, you know, to take you from the bottom to the top. 
it's not going to be easy, but you find your why because everybody has a why. Everybody's somebody, somebody. There is a why out there. You know, I ended up becoming a coach and a speaker because of my past, because of my suffering. I got to turn my pain into purpose. Yes. I yes. get to. I never would have guessed I would be do this, but that is my why now. So my why was my son. I mean, I still want to be a role model for him, right? Um, he's like a mini me. It's it's pretty awesome. I feel bad for my girlfriend because she has two kids. <laughs> she has a five year old, six year old, and she's got you. Yeah. <laughs> but my why now is to help other people. So whatever you're going through, there is a learning lesson in it. Whether it's bad or it's good, you can look at it. So I wouldn't change a thing for what I'm going through, what I went through now, because I get to help other people. But find your why. Then what you do, you base your decisions around your why. So my why was my son. He's my anger. So what do I have to do now? Well, I have to quit drinking. I have to quit doing drugs. Those so I'm basing my decisions around that because it's not going to benefit me to do those. What else do I do? I had to go back to rehab. So I base my decisions around my why. So found my why, base my decisions. And then you got to figure out the how to the why, because the why is the belief and the how is the action. So what was the how? Okay. Well, you got to do gratitude every morning. What am I grateful for? You know, journal my feelings at night, positive affirmations. I am statements like I am strong. I am adversity. I am recovery. I am a coach. I am a speaker. I am a father. Reaffirm who you are to the world. Eating healthy. You know, I know when I quit drinking, I, I can still crave sugar and go on those little sugar binges, but for me, it's, it's something I, I need to change. I want to change it, change the needs into wants as well. And, you know, it, it gets pretty draining when you say I need to do something. Be like, I want to do it because I will benefit from it. Right. But change your diet because you are what you eat. You put in crap, you feel like crap. It's, it's, <laughs> That's it's for sure. Funny, right? <laughs> you don't have to tell um, me that. Yet exercise, I know it's tough. I know you want to stay in your bed all day. I was there too. You know what? I you know I am a coach and I am a speaker and I help other people, but there are days I feel like not getting out of bed. But that's okay. I allow myself to lay in there for a little bit longer. But but you know you got to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Get go for a five minute walk. Like it doesn't have to be earth shattering, but get some exercise. And the biggest thing you do is when you feel like giving up, talk to somebody. Talk to somebody, build a support network of people that are going to build you up, encourage you, inspire you, you know, lend you an ear. There are people out there. And you have to be around positive people. Yeah. And you know what? If you have to change your friends, you have to change your friends. Right. Right. Doesn't mean you don't have to like them. Right. Yeah. Right. You you can change. (laughs) Uh, Justin, you're on a suicide prevention team in uh, Salmon Arm, British Columbia. How have your uh, life skills dealing with uh, suicide helped the team? Well, you know, it's, they really welcomed, wanted me on the team. They approached me actually, because I am a six foot three, 235 pound tattooed fit guy. I don't look like a guy that's going to be. You look fit to me. I mean, I would, (laughs) I wouldn't want to take you on. (laughs) I don't look like that guy that's going to say, Hey, I struggle with my mental health or I was suicidal. And I'm that guy that can talk about the man up stigma because I lived by that. Like, I remember telling my buddy that was was when I was 24. So we had a conversation about depression and I looked at him and I said, depression is an excuse. It's for the weak. You need to man up. Now I lived by that because I lived by that. I was beating myself up, keeping everything down, running away from life. Manning up is taking responsibility for your choices and asking for help. It takes a true man to, be authentic and be vulnerable to ask for help. Yeah, so, I agree. Uh, so, I'm, I'm an advocate for the, uh, the male breast cancer coalition. I'm a male breast cancer survivor and we go through the same thing. You know, uh, there's guys out there that don't want to talk about it. They're stigmatized and that kind of thing. And they got to ask for help. And uh, yeah. so, so we, you know, we try to reach as many as we can and, uh, and get them out of that, that funk that they're in and you know so it's a yeah it's a it's a tough hole the cdc is saying that one in three americans are dealing with depression or anxiety due to covid uh how has this affected the mental how has this affected the mental health conversation i think in this you know what i hate to say it but in a positive but negative way it's getting more attention 
you know, I see a lot more people sharing it on social media, what depression can do and that they are suffering. Yeah. Unfortunately, it, a disease had to come along for it to be pushed more and more, right. To be more broadcasted about, Hey, and it's because I think a lot of like introverts or extroverts, mind you are struggling now too. You know, you know, when they came up, (laughs) I just got out of my, you know, my isolation stage and a year later, they're like, okay, you got to isolate, huh? Okay. (laughs) Don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) (laughs) I was born for isolation, (laughs) but you know, other people, they're finding out what it's like to be an introvert or to be forced to stay home. Now I'm saying the government was forcing them to stay home, but when you have depression or you're clinically depressed, like I was, you're almost forced to stay home. You are, but you're not because you don't want to go because you're sad. If you go out, you can disappoint somebody. If you go out, you have to have a conversation. If you go out, you know, you may cry in the middle of nowhere. So depression is like almost like a forced isolation. Although you do have a choice to, to get out, but it's just, it's so hard. Yeah. I think with COVID going on, people are starting to pay attention to what depression can actually do to you because they are starting to go through it. I never advocated for mental health until I started to go through it. I never advocated for addiction until I started to go through it. Now, a lot of people are going to dismiss it, right? Because they're not going through it. They don't understand it. But now that people are starting to understand it, you know, they're starting to advocate, holy cow, this is, this is serious. So you're going to see these people that, you know, they're, they're all manly and stuff. And they think they're invincible. They're like, holy cow, this is actually happening to me. Oh, yeah. now this is real. Because you know what? When I had a buddy, his father committed suicide when he was a kid. And it, it hurt him. I thought I was helping him by saying, oh, it's the coward's way out. You're better than that. And see, I, I, I legitimately thought I was helping him by saying that. Now, going through it, it's like, holy cow. It really opens up your eyes. It's not the coward's way out it's just you, you think it's the only way out yeah i mean you're the real deal i mean if, if people want good advice you're the guy to come to because you've been through it you know i mean there's there's nothing more than better than than the experience tell us what uh you teach about workplace wellness relating to mental health issues and has it helped to uh destigmatize the subject for uh the employees well, you know what? I think that the Canadian government is, I believe they're giving more sick days or personal days. Um, I see all over the world, there are mental health days or wellness days, or I think in Japan it was, they have this wellness bucket they give to people or they're shortening the hours, realizing that, Hey, they went down to six hours, but they're getting more production. Yeah. But what helped me at work was having the ability to go on short-term benefits. Like, Cause I, I mean, I still got paid to go off work. Um, so I can support my family or I wouldn't have taken it. I would not have left work. I would have stayed there and suffered, but I had that option. Also my foreman, they would talk to me about it. I, I built a good rapport, not a rap before, but a rapport with, my, <laughs> with play my, on words. <laughs> yeah. With my foreman. And they were actually just good to talk to you. We just had, and uh, my HR, you know, they, they helped, they were there to talk to me. My, uh, they got me five counseling sessions, um, realizing that if you hate your job, you don't have to stay there or maybe you do, but if you do have to stay there, why, what are three things you're grateful about that job or what, what is it bringing you? So, you know, I didn't like working at the mill cause it was boring to me. You know, it was the same thing day in and day out. Sure. So, but my son has an education fund. I got the help that I needed. You know, I built some good friendships. So as much as I hated that job, my friend, had, my son had a roof over his head, had clothes on his back. He had an education fund. That's <laughs> he has more money than me. <laughs> He's five. <laughs> so look for the great, look for the gratitude out of that. Oh, and if you do, but if you do hate your job, what can you do on your free time to replace it? Know right. that you, do not have, you don't have to stay in that job unless you've been there like maybe 20 years and you know, you have five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years left and you got a good pension, but you don't have to stay in your job that you don't like. You don't have to. 
And if you do, you know, Oprah Winfrey said, do what you have to do until you get to do what you want to do. So me right now, uh, I do coach. I do speak. I'm not a full-time coach or a full-time speaker by any means yet, but I still serve them. And I still serve five days a week. Um, and it's, it's, it's draining for sure. Um, and they're, cause they're all nights, but, and I get up to walk my kid in the, to school in the morning and stuff like that. And I go to the gym and try to work on my stuff during the day. But you know what, what does serving do for me? Well, it gets me to have those conversations with people. It gets me so I can pick up my son and take him to school. It gets me so I can make enough money to pay for schooling and pay for bills and pay for food. And you know, do I want to be serving? Not really, but you know what? I get to help. I get to make people have a good time when they come in. I get to make them laugh. Yeah. You know, I get to show them a good time. And do I want to do it forever? Not a chance. <laughs> no. <laughs> but for the time being, I will do it until I'm, until I get my coaching and my speaking full time. Well, just look, looking and listening to you, I am sure you are an excellent server, without a doubt. Well, you I- know what. There, people are coming out right now and they're just thankful to be out. So it's up to us, the servers, to make sure they have a good time. And, you know, there's always <laughs> someone sarcastic to me. I'm sarcastic right back. Justin, do you have any tips or advice for us uh, what to do if we know someone is, say, off mentally in a serious way and could be a potential problem, either doing harm to themselves or others? Uh, that's a, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, I've called the cops on people if I feel like they're going to, Yeah. Um, or you ask them straight up, do you think you're going to, I, I don't, I'm sorry for asking this, but do you think you're going to harm yourself? Are you okay? Can I talk to you a little bit longer, but then you got to be careful because you are not a counselor and it, it's, it is a gray area, but I mean, I've called the cops three times on people. And they, what the cops do is it's called a wellness check and they don't give your name of whoever called them, but you got to I mean, don't just pick up and call. Sometimes people just, you know, they need that attention. They need that person to talk to, but you know, it's, it's tough because you never know. And you don't want to be that guy that talks to him last. Justin, right? I've heard, I've heard that if you talk to somebody in that state and you ask them or it comes out that they have a plan I've been told that that's a pretty bad sign. Yeah. I mean, when they come out and say, yeah, I got a plan. Well, you don't know when they're going to carry that plan out. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a bad sign, right? But see, a lot of, you know, you you can say, do you plan on hurting yourself? And they can easily just say no. Right. Fully lying to your face. Like, I don't know how many times I looked my counselor in the face, said no. Or my doctor said no. Are you suicidal? Nope. Or, hey, I'm Justin Ryan. How are you doing today? When I really felt like this. Yeah. Put on that mask, mask of deception. Sure. I got really good at it. What What are, you know, this is just kind of a little bit off topic, but not really. But what are your thoughts on the legaliz- legalization and decriminalization of uh, substances like marijuana, LSD, some opioids, and their removal from the list of controlled substances. Are we moving in the right direction in regard to this, in your opinion, knowing uh, what you know now, having gone uh, through addiction and, you know, we, we know chronic use of marijuana can cause depression. Yeah, you know, and people don't realize that, that chronic, when it comes to the decriminalization part, I don't really know all the stats to it. I know it's worked in other countries, yeah. So, I mean, how much you can handle or you, how much you can have on you. So, but I don't know fully all the stats on that. But I do know that people think marijuana is a lot safer than it actually is. Um, it can lead to psych. I've heard it and I've seen it lead to psychosis. Uh-huh. Changes to where if you are relying on a substance, I mean, it's still addiction. If you, yeah. there's no difference between getting up and having a beer in the morning and getting up and having a toke. Right. And driving your car. Like there's no difference. It's, it's a mind altering substance. 
and like don't get me wrong i'm not against drinking i'm not against drug like marijuana use if you use it in moderation and at your house and don't operate a vehicle and because i'm lucky i never killed anybody drinking and driving i'm very lucky yeah and i don't know how i could live after that if i did but it's it's the exact same and if you it, it alters your mind let's just say that it, yeah. it doesn't build brain cells <laughs> like, right but when it comes to the decriminalization i don't really know the stats on i know i think it's worked in spain um and i think maybe norway or something like that but it, it's bringing their their uh prison um population down is it working i don't know i don't know how it kind of i don't really know how it works i haven't really paid attention to to that much of it can you tell us about the uh stronger you project you created so i created this project because it's something i believe that like all these modules i have something i believe that will help build up your confidence and you know habits and passion and purpose to becoming a better version of yourself you know it's coaching but it's things that i believe that people should implement into their life so we work on things like finding your why your purpose your passion um your non-negotiable list of things that you must do, uh, defeating self-learning beliefs, building self-confidence, identifying triggers, um, building those healthy boundaries. Is that, you know, I found a lot of people are very, they have a very hard time with healthy boundaries because they don't like saying no to people because they don't want to hurt their feelings. Right. You know, so where people work with me one-on-one for 12 weeks, we go, we, we talk about whatever they want to talk about. Um, then we get, then they assign homework. We talk about the previous homework they also get uh, an accountability sheet. So where they work with, so they actually grade themselves on how they per- perform that week. You know, did they reach their goals? Did they hold themselves accountable? How do they, out of 10, how do they think they did? What are some big wins that week? But I think the biggest thing I have in each, every single one of my modules is what are three things that you love about yourself? So at the end of every module, they have to answer three things they love about themselves because everyone's like, I could tell you like 50 million reasons why I love my kid. But when someone's like, what do you love about yourself? Well, now I'm better at it. But in the beginning, I couldn't even answer one. So it's getting people to love themselves because you must love yourself first. Justin, you, when, when, when you work with people, do you only work with people in like in your home area or do you, can you work with people? Remotely? No, it's all online. Okay. So it doesn't matter where they are. No, that's good. Okay. Uh, do you, do you plan to expand your mental health advocacy in the future? Yeah. So I'm just, I finally got my first keynote 45 minute speech tomorrow in a high school. And I've spoken at a bunch of different places, but not a 45 solo keynote. Now I forgot my first tomorrow and that's, that's the beginning. Good I luck. also, thank you. I also have a mental health presentation online slide deck that I do as well next week for the same school. So for the students I'm speaking for the teachers, I'm doing the mental, I have a mental health presentation on um, kind of a little bit of my story. Like the speech is all basically all my story in my life and life lessons. But yeah. the mental health presentation is a little bit of my story, how to recognize it, how to get like, you know, navigate your journey, maybe how to listen to it. Um, and then it has some resources in it where you can ask for help. But yes, my, you know, I fell into the coaching. I wanted the speaking and I feel like I can reach more people through the speaking, but I can definitely, I've helped change eight different lives already with the coaching. And that feels really good. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh... It's the same thing we do at, at the Male Breast Cancer Coalition. You know, uh, we can't change the world, but we can, you know, affect even one person. It's it's a great feeling, you know. When yeah, you, when and you, you know what it's, uh, what is it, the compound effect, the penny. Yeah, yeah. Double. So what excites you uh, going forward? Yeah, honestly, what my capabilities are. You know, I've had so much support and encouragement. And every time I put out a piece of content, someone says, Oh, I really need to see that, that day, that day, you know, when I feel like giving up, it's like, Oh, it's maybe it's not getting noticed. And then you get that comment. It's like, Oh, I really need you to see that today. Or thank you. That excites me. Good. You know, the fact that I'm finally getting to schools and I'm just getting into like my first one. And like, this is just the beginning. There are so many schools in this world. 
Yeah. It is so many possibilities in this that I can, so many people that I could positively change and help, help them make change or see that they should make change. Like it's just starting. I'm excited for you. I really am. Thank you. What, what important takeaway points and tips would you like to leave us with regarding what things uh, people with mental health issues can do to help themselves? First one, big one, ask for help. Second, if you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, you must keep on walking. Find your why. Find your why to go on. There is one out there because you know there's always someone that like looks up to you. Okay. Justin, where can people contact you? Uh, well, I have a website, just www.justinbryan.com. Um, you can find me on Instagram at justinbryan19 or just Justin Bryan on Facebook. And I'd love to hear from you. If anybody wants to reach out, say what they got out of it. You know, I, I got an email the other day because I was on a summit. Um, and I spoke about finding your why and she just said, thank you. And like, even that, like, that's just said that, you know what, there's somebody listened and paid attention, you know, when you're, your day. people are looking at you, like it's, yeah. it's a really good feeling. Yeah. Uh, I once spoke at a, at a business and actually it was where my mom worked and it was a 40, 50 of my peers or adults and a couple of guys that played hockey with that had no idea Then I spoke and a guy got up afterwards and he actually talked about his struggles for 10 minutes. And the two guys made appointments after. It was awesome. But then one time I went and spoke at a, at a school. And then I saw that, that, that girl at the gym. And I'm like, like, hey, like, did you go to this school? She's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I, I spoke to you guys. And then she looks at you spoke? <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> I kind of failed my a little bit. <laughs> But there's other kids that remember me. Like I see around town, like, oh, you're that guy, right? Oh, I'm I, sure they do. Yeah. They remember, but that one kind of. That one, that one did. Yeah, okay. that one. Maybe she was sleeping or something. Who knows? <laughs> we'll just say she was sleeping. Well, I want to tell our audience, one in 10 people suffer from mental illness and one in five will experience a mental health issue in their lifetime. Thank you, Justin, for sharing your story with us, enlightening us about these issues. I wish you all the best going forward. And I am sure you will continue to do great things in the future to help people with addiction and mental health issues. We would like our listeners that have any suggestions, observations, comments to make the podcast better uh, to contact us at our uh, website blog. It's a wrap with rap.com. You can e email us at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com or on our Facebook uh, page. It's a wrap with rap. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want everybody to please stay safe out there. And for now, it's a wrap. <laughs>